Welcome to Satellite Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethane. You know, as I get older and I spend more time walking with the Lord, I become less dogmatic about a lot of my beliefs. And there are still some things that I won't budge on. I'm still a pretty conservative, fundamentalist Christian on pretty much everything moral. But there are some things that as I get older, I learn that my views on were necessarily wrong, but are in need of maturation and reshaping. And one of those things is the view that I have traditionally been taught and held on biblical inerrancy and scriptural authority. And if you're like me, I think a lot of the dogmas we've grown up in that area are wrong. So before you turn this off, let me start by saying that I believe the Bible is true, authoritative, historically accurate, and the supreme authority on the nature of God. I also believe that the influence of fundamentalist Christian culture has greatly distorted the concepts of inerrancy and biblical authority. So I'm going to end with the rant, and I'm going to take about a 10-minute detour to talk about some nerdy stuff. So stay with me, and the rant will come at the end. So if you were to ask me if I believe the Bible is inerrant, I would tell you that it depends on what you mean by inerrant, and that's not a cop-out. It really does matter. If by inerrant you mean that the KJV, NIV, NASB, or ESV Bible that you got sitting next to you or downloaded on your phone, if inerrant means that that is perfectly preserved and translated to the point of being free of any mistakes or errors, then I reject that view of inerrancy. Now, if by inerrant you mean the Bible is completely historically reliable and absolutely internally consistent in its teachings about the history of Israel, the nature of God, the sinfulness of man, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sign me up. I completely affirm that. And so here comes the dichotomy. So, so David, you're about to defend the authority of the Bible after you just admitted it contained errors. And yes, I am. Um, let me start by saying there's a difference between an error and a contradiction. Here's an example of an error in the KJV Bible. So in 2 Kings 8.26, 2 and 20 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. you got to love that KJV. Now, in 2 Chronicles 22 and 2, you get 40 and 2 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. This would be an error caused by a discrepancy between two of the ancient manuscripts. It's just that simple. Modern translations like the NIV, NASB, and ESV have reconciled it, but it's the kind of objection you commonly see raised when the reliability of Scripture is brought up. Is it problematic? I don't know about you, but I don't think it really bothers me that someone transposed a number in one of the ancient manuscripts. It's just, to me, that doesn't cause a theological dilemma. And... An example of a contradiction would be something like what we see in these passages. So you got Genesis 32, 30 that says, For I have seen God face to face. Then you have Exodus 33, 11, And the Lord spake to Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And then you have Exodus 33, 20 which says, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Well, that's a contradiction or an apparent contradiction because it seems to be saying two different things. Another common example are some patches in Exodus where you have one where God is saying that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Another where he says he does not visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And the truth is that there are actually sound explanations for both of these passages, and I'm not going to go into them here. But at first glance, you can see how they could be taken as contradictions about the nature of God's interaction with man. And that said, even if you think these are legitimate contradictions, which they're really not, they still don't do anything to call into question any core doctrines of the Christian faith. 
man's depravity, God's love for mankind, and the necessity of Christ's atonement. They don't address that. They don't mess with that. And so I know this is a rather cliche Christian answer, but there really aren't very many true discrepancies in the Bible that can't be explained by either a closer analysis of the text or an in-depth knowledge of the historical and societal context of the writing. So the examples above would be ones that require a little bit more intense study and scholarship. But there are zero, and I repeat, zero discrepancies in the Bible related to the core doctrines. And as I said, even if you do accept scriptures like these ones above as errors, they don't affect the essence of the faith. And I'm going to keep saying that because it's really important. Now, as for the New Testament, there's a really popular book that came out when I was in college called Misquoting Jesus by Bart Ehrman, who's a biblical scholar. And here's an excerpt from pages 89 and 90 of his very, very popular book. With the abundance of evidence, what can we say about the total number of variants known today? Scholars differ significantly in their estimates. Some say there are 200,000 variants known. Some say 300,000. Some say 400,000 or more. We do not know for sure because despite impressive developments in computer technology, no one has yet been able to count them all. Perhaps, as I indicated earlier, it is best to simply leave the matter in comparative terms. There are more variations among the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So basically, Bart Ehrman's argument is that there's so much variation in the New Testament among the different manuscripts that they're not reliable. And it's a terrible BS argument. And it's not a new argument. Um, there are approximately 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. And there may be up to three times that many variants, as Aaron points out. But a variant can be something as simple as like a misplaced article or spelling the Apostle John's name with two N's instead of one. For example, if John's name appeared with one N 200 times in a manuscript and appeared with two N's 200 times in another manuscript, that's 200 different variants. When you consider there are about 5,600 Greek manuscripts, you start to see how the number of variant counts gets really high. That said, let me go back to what I said before. It's an undisputed fact that the majority, the overwhelming majority of variants deal with things like word order, spelling of proper names, and the addition of simple articles and conjunctions. Here's an example from Daniel B. Wallace at Bible.org on some variants for the simple line, Jesus loves Paul. So the first one, it's Jesus loves Paul. The second one is Jesus loves the Paul. Then it's the Jesus loves Paul. Then it's the Jesus loves the Paul. Then it's Paul Jesus loves. That's five variants and it's more. And every one of those, despite the fact that they say the same statement with the exact same meaning, gets counted as a variant, even though none of them change the meaning. And so you hear these wild claims about all these variants in Scripture, and it's like, dude, like, this is ridiculous. Get out of here with that. So I just wanted to point that out, that a lot of the fuss made about variations in the New Testament, it's just noise. It's just nonsense numbers that don't affect any of the significant theology of the text. And even the most liberal textual critics grant that about 95% of the text in the New Testament is not in question. Others like Craig Blomberg estimate it's as high as 97 99%. And the 5% or less about which they may have some doubt don't affect anything of substance. Um, for example, take 1 John 1.14. There are different translations of this, and these are actually going to be noted in your study Bible. One translation is, thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And there are some people that feel like it should be translated, thus we are writing these things so that your joy may be made complete. And here's one of those cases where a variant actually does change the meaning of the passage, and yet the alternate translation has zero theological ramifications. So, as I get to the end of my nerdy session, let me tell you this. There's basically seven passages in the New Testament that scholars think were added after the original manuscripts. So these are kind of like what you would call the seven deadly passages, and I'm doing air quotes here. 
These are the most commonly used as ammunition for claims the New Testament has been significantly altered and distorted after the fact. We know these passages are questionable because the text in them doesn't appear in the very earliest copies of these books of the Bible. And here they are. I'm not going to read through all of them, but Mark 16, 9 through 20, which is when Jesus appears post-mortem and gives the Great Commission. John 7, 53 through 8, 11, where Jesus talks to the adulterous woman. 1 John 5, 7 through 8, which is a verse about the Trinity. Mark 1, 41, where Jesus appears to a man in le with leprosy. Hebrews 2, 9, which discusses Jesus' glory and death. John 1.18, which says no man has seen God, and then Matthew 24.36, which claims that no one knows the hour of the second coming. So these are all passages that do not appear in the earliest manuscripts, and there are questions about whether they were added to the Bible later. So let's, let's take the devil's advocate angle. Even if all of these were later editions of the Bible, none of them contradicts or conflicts with any of the core doctrines like sin, Christ's death, and the resurrection. I know I sound like a broken record, but that's just a really, really essential point. If you want to call Christianity into question, you have to be able to cast doubt on its central event, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it, it just doesn't happen. And in case you didn't know, every one of these disputed verses is footnoted as questionable in your translations. Like they're literally footnoted in your Bible as does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. So let me go off, from, off of the nerdy stuff into my rant about why this stuff matters. I share all that with you to say that I really believe that the Bible is authoritative and reliable. But I also think that a lot of our understanding of inerrancy is misappropriated. So one of the proof texts for biblical authority comes from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And it's one that we all know. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, here's the thing. People use this as a proof text to affirm that the New Testament is divinely inspired. But here's the problem. When Paul says that all scriptures God breathed, he's not talking about his own writings. Every use of the Greek word scripture in the New Testament refers to the writings of the Old Testament, all of them. The overwhelming majority of them refer to specific prophecies. So they'll be led by something like, as it says in the scriptures, or so that scripture will be fulfilled. And it's referring to Old Testament passages. And the context here is Paul affirming Timothy. He's not saying my words are divinely inspired. That's not the point of what he's saying. He's saying, I know you grew up reading the Old Testament and all the stuff that you grew up studying was inspired by God. And you have to think about this. When Paul's writing, the New Testament wasn't completed. <laughs> He was literally writing it. I mean, so he's not referring to his own writings. He's not even referring to the Gospels because they were all completed at the time he was writing. Paul is asserting the reliability and value of the Old Testament as God's divine word. So this is one of the issues with our inerrancy dogma in the New Testament, where I was raised to believe that every line and dot in the New Testament was essentially God taking the hand of the New Testament writers and pinning his own words through them. And that is not what they claimed about their own writings, and I don't think it matches with the rest of Scripture. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-20. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came 
to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Pause right there. Peter is essentially saying, hey, everything we're telling you about God is an eyewitness account. This is our own recollection of the events because we were there and we saw them. Notice what he does not claim. He does not say God divinely revealed the events of his resurrection to me and then I pinned what he showed me in a vision. What he says was, I was there and I gave my account of the story of the resurrection life of Christ to you. Now let's pick up in verse 19. We also have a prophetic message of something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Now, listen to this thing she makes here. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. So he makes a distinction. He says prophecy is completely reliable and it is not someone's interpretation of God's word. Prophecy is God's exact word penned through the fingers of the author. Peter makes that claim about prophecy. He doesn't make that claim about his own writings. And if you back out and take like a 20,000 foot view of the Bible, think about this. What parts of scripture do come directly from God's mouth? And I have three. The law which is literally written with God's finger on the tablets for Moses when he wrote the Ten Commandments and given dictated directly to Moses later on. Prophecy, which is where God says to a prophet, write these exact words. And the third one being the words of Christ, who is God incarnate. And so here's kind of my thesis and my point. Our focus should be on establishing the coherent perfection of these three, specifically how law and prophecy point to the third, which is Jesus, who is the cornerstone of our entire faith. That's where we have to change. A great way of illustrating this is an old book by Rob Bell, of all people, called Velvet Elvis. And there's a great illustration like the first couple chapters of that book, and it talks about viewing our faith as a trampoline versus a brick wall. And he says, when you view your faith as a trampoline, trampolines have springs that can be taken off and adjusted. You can take one spring off the trampoline and the trampoline does not fall apart, it does not break. And you can adjust those springs as needed. So those springs would be non-essential doctrines, things that change as you grow and mature in your faith. Maybe your view of tithing, maybe your eschatology, things that are not central to salvation. Those things are the legs of the trampoline. And without those, the trampoline does not stand. But the springs of the trampoline are adjusted, tightened, loosened, taken out, replaced. And what Rob Bell makes a point about is that for a lot of us, like me, our doctrinal upbringing formed our belief system into a brick wall, where if any single brick was removed, the entire wall and the entire system of belief crumbled. And the problem is that some of the bricks that were put into place in our walls have the staying power of paper mache. And if they're pushed too hard, they don't hold up and people's entire faiths crumble. And we've seen it happen. And this is what I want to point out. Instead of arguing about word counts and whether or not a manuscript was changed, let's focus on the prophecy and words of Jesus, which are completely unshakable. And so here's kind of my summary. As we grow and mature in our faith, let's shift our dogma 
towards defending the historicity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the sovereign perfection or accuracy of God's own words, recognizing what is actually God's own word. Prophecy. I can't emphasize to you how important prophecy is because prophecy is God's very own words. It can be tested and ultimately so much of it points to Jesus. And that is what we need to be focusing on defending. So there's my rant. Hopefully I don't get anybody too upset. But please let me know what you think. I'll be posting an article that has a lot of the textual criticism information in it in the next uh, few days. But please give me feedback on this. I'd love to know what y'all think. And in listening to this, I sincerely hope you hear my heart, which is not to attack Scripture. That is the furthest thing from it. It's to defend Scripture, but to say, let's put our energy into defending the right things in Scripture. Amen. This has been Dave Bethay for Satellite Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.